Hello, and welcome to AMA Thriving in Private Practice, a 10-episode series exploring the unique needs of physicians in private practice settings. In our show, we'll talk about efficiency solutions and how to transition into the world of private practice. We also will focus on other tips and tools to help free up time so you can focus on your patients. I'm your host, Carol Vargo, Director of Physician Practice Sustainability at the American Medical Association. Today, I'm joined by two guests, Heather McComas. Hi, I'm Heather McComas, and I am Director of Administrative Simplification Initiatives. And Emily Carroll. Hi, I'm Emily Carroll, and I'm a Senior Legislative Attorney in our Advocacy Resource Center. Heather McComas is Director of AMA's Administrative Simplification Initiatives team which coordinates the AMA's activities on prior auth, including our annual prior authorization physician survey. Emily Carroll is an AMA senior legislative attorney in the Advocacy Resource Center and works on state prior authorization reforms, including recent changes in gold carding legislation in Texas and its impact on private practice physicians. Welcome, Heather and Emily. Thanks, it's great to be here, Carol. Hi, Carol. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us. So before we dive in, why don't we set the stage and could you each tell our listeners about your work? Emily, uh, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Our role um, in large part is to support state medical associations and medical specialty societies in their legislative and regulatory efforts. We provide model bills, issue briefs, testimony, and lots of other resources and support to the medical associations. We also work um, on a national level with state policymakers through organizations like the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, the National Governors Association, and others. And in my group, we kind of divide our work up uh, based on issues. And my bucket includes commercial payer reform issues, which I includes a lot of prior authorization efforts and reforms and other um, utilization management type reforms as well. Great. That is a lot. Um, and, but in addition, Heather, I know you also are working quite a bit on prior auth. Tell us a little bit about your work at the AMA. Sure thing, Carol. So my team works on reducing administrative burdens for physicians and their practice staff. Uh, we do a lot of work with improving and making revenue cycle processes more efficient through electronic transactions. But that work has expanded in recent years to also advocating to reduce the burdens imposed by payers, both commercial and government payers, by administrative processes such as prior authorization. Uh, My team of three and myself do quite a bit of work on this topic is a huge concern for both physicians and their patients. Thanks for that overview from both of you. While I suspect many of our listeners are familiar with the topic of prior authorization, Heather, can you outline some of the main challenges that um, are impacting both patients and physicians? Absolutely, Carol. Prior authorization is a huge concern for the AMA's physician members and the AMA has been conducting an annual survey of about a thousand practicing physicians for the past six years to capture the impact of this process on both physician practices and patients. Um, I'm sure, first of all, that most of your listeners are aware of what prior authorization is, but just to level set, it is a payer requirement that 
a physician or other healthcare professional receive advanced approval for a drug, service, medical device, any other type of treatment before it can be provided to the patient to guarantee coverage. And it can be quite a time-consuming process and, and really impact the delivery of timely care to, to patients. And that's clearly shown in our annual survey results. We just released our 2021 physician survey results, and physicians again report that this process is having a real negative impact on patients and their care. An overwhelming majority of patients, 93%, indicated that prior authorization can delay access to medically necessary care. And this just isn't about making people wait or inconveniencing them. It actually has negative impacts on their their health. Um, 82% of physicians said that Prior authorization can lead to patients abandoning their course of treatment, meaning they never get the drug or service that the physician ordered or prescribed for them. Um, 91% of physicians indicated that prior authorization can lead to negative clinical outcomes. And I think the most alarming statistic from this year's survey is that over a third, 34% of physicians indicated that prior authorization has led to a serious adverse event for a patient in their care. And we are very careful in crafting that question to indicate what we meant by serious adverse event. We're essentially using the FDA definition. So we're talking about things like hospitalization, a permanent injury or disability, or even death. So these are very alarming um, statistics and obviously represent real patient harm. Our survey results also capture the effect of prior authorization on physicians and practice workload. Um, in our survey, um, physicians' um, practices reported completing an average of 41 prior authorizations per physician per week. And this prior authorization workload just for one physician consumed almost two business days of physician and staff time. So obviously this process has a lot of administrative costs to our healthcare system. And um, it's also um, disturbing to note that 40% of physicians indicated that they have hired practice staff just to do prior authorization. Again, we're adding a lot of administrative costs to our healthcare system just to do paperwork. So that is very helpful background on what obviously is a significant burden on practices and patients. And I know all of that information has fed into um, many strategies and activities that you and Emily both oversee here at the AMA. Um, and the I know that the AMA and there uh, is a coalition of 16 other organizations that have released the prior authorization and utilization management reform principles. These were released in early 2017. Emily, can you tell us a little bit more about the principles, how they came about, and what they say? Sure. In 2017, amid the rising outcry over what we really saw as an increase in the prior authorization requirements by plans, a group of uh, organizations that included uh, several medical societies, as well as the hospitals, um, MGMA, so the practice managers, pharmacists and some consumer organizations came together and drafted um, principles around what ended up being 21 principles around some concepts uh, to reform the prior authorization process. And we really began with the underlying assumption that prior authorization and utilization management, as much as we would like it to go away, is not going to go away. So 
Um, what we really needed to do was streamline it, right size it, and make it better for physicians and patients. So um, what the result was what we think are um, 21 really kind of sound common sense principles. And they address uh, five kind of broad categories of prior authorization, including clinical validity, continuity of care, transparency and fairness, timely access and administrative efficiency, and alternatives and exemptions. Uh, in the years that have followed the release of these principles, we've had over 100 organizations sign on to the principles and support them. And the principles have really served as the basis for so much of our advocacy on prior authorization. And actually, um, the principles make up much of um, our model legislation on prior authorization, which I can go into a bit later. Um, but I'll let Heather fill in any gaps I've missed on, on the principles. That was great, Emily. And I will just echo and underscore two things that Emily just said. First of all, that document um, was created initially by a coalition of 17 organizations, including the AMA. But as Emily indicated, over 100 other organizations have signed on to support those concepts. And in fact, we just got another request to add another organization fairly recently, which is exciting. So it has a lot of support from um, both the healthcare professional um, side of the healthcare uh, industry and also patients as well. It has a a lot of support out there in, in the world. And the second thing are highlight is that the document really is the basis and crux of all our advocacy on this issue. If we're evaluating um, a piece of rulemaking or federal legislation or any other document about prior authorization and utilization management, we turn back to the principles and see what does this document say, because this is really essentially our, our Bible and our North Star for what we're advocating for in this space. That's really great to underscore, because I think it is very true that in all of the work that the AMA does, it is it is bound on our policies created in our House of Delegates, as well as these kinds of consensus principles, which I think is, gives us so much latitude and so much, um, I'd say, heft to the work that you all are doing in this space. Um, one specific solution I know that has been um, occurring in the last several years is this focus on the concept of gold carding. Emily, can you give us some background on what gold carding is um, and really how does it impact physicians? Sure, thanks, Carol. Um, Yes, gold carding is a really hot prior authorization reform right now and appropriately so. It's, um, It's essentially an exemption from prior authorization for a physician who has a high percentage of approvals on an item or service. It's a concept that the AMA has long supported directly and indirectly, I'd say for a while, um, as a way to really reduce the volume of prior authorizations. Um, The way it's generally being thought of and, and potentially implemented right now is that a gold card is provided to a physician by a plan based on an item or service for a period of time. And the thought is that the ability of a physician to sort of uh, effectively test out of prior authorization could be an enormous administrative relief for doctors in their practices, especially if it's for care that they they frequently provide and thus have to frequently get prior authorizations for. Um, Last year, Texas was able to enact a new gold carding law and 
that has received a lot of attention. Um, the the Texas law, uh, under the Texas law, a provider receives an exemption from prior authorization for a service from a plan if in a six-month period they have received 90% approvals um, for that item or service. So under this law, the gold card is essentially continuous um, after it's granted, um, although the health plan can reevaluate the physician's status up to twice a year. Uh, and if they decide to rescind um, that gold card, they have to tell the physician at least 25 days in advance. And under the law, the physician has the ability to appeal that rescission with an outside independent review organization. Um, so there's a lot of eyes watching Texas um, and seeing how this law is going to be implemented um, and, and what, you know, what we can do to copy uh, potential successes. Yeah, I think that's a great point because so often great laws are passed and then it's, of course, all in the regulatory scheme and then the implementation. So I'm sure we will be and you will be watching this um, intensely um, to see how it goes and to see if the plans actually follow the letter of the law, we hope. Yeah. Um, um, so apart from that important Texas law, um, are there any other state prior authorization reform activities in place or are other states that you're aware of that might be considering um, gold carding or other policies? Yes, absolutely. So right now there's a number of other states that are considering gold carding laws, um, including Missouri, Kansas, Colorado, Indiana, and Oklahoma all have proposals in their legislatures. Um, and in addition to gold carding, state legislators have been um, considering and passing prior authorization reforms for years and years. Um, and and these, these reforms can span the gamut of potential ideas. Um, and they include often include things like quick response times, making sure that a licensed and qualified physician is the one making determinations, uh, preventing retroactive denials after a prior authorization is approved, uh, ensuring that repeated prior authorizations are not required. And I think this is especially important for patients with chronic conditions whose conditions aren't changing and have to uh, go to the visit, go to their physician and, and re-up their prior authorization frequently throughout the year. Uh, we frequently see states um, ensuring continuity of care when a visit or when a patient switches health plans and maybe needs to get approval from the new health plan. So ensuring there's no dis disruptions in their care during that time. Uh, we often see, and, and we're we're glad to see this more. Uh, requirements um, on plans to report kind of prior authorization statistics and data. Uh, so maybe uh, how often uh, item or service is approved, denied, what appeals look like, wait times, and so on, so that we kind of better understand who is most being impacted by prior authorization requirements. And we also are working, and Heather's group has been instrumental in this, um, ensuring that um, prior authorization is streamlined through an electronic prior authorization process. So we are not seeing practices um, still relying on faxes and individual payer portals and such to, um, to get their prior authorizations done. 
So I'll just mention that the AMA has model legislation that includes all of these and more um, reforms. And we it often serves as the basis for a lot of the state um, legislation that we see. This year we have, I'm seeing um, bills in DC, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Georgia, and more. And every year we see um, several uh, prior authorization prior authorization reform bills pass and and get implemented so um, we're always excited uh, when we get a state that that's working hard on this and we, we support them in any way we can and um, this year is, is no different medicine doesn't stand still and at the AMA neither do we AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. Thanks for that really comprehensive rundown and overview. I think obviously the legislative front is very important, but I also know we do a lot of direct engagement with health plans to try to ameliorate the impacts of their policies on prior auth. And I know, Heather, that's a big portion of your portfolio at the AMA. So can you talk a bit about that work and also about the consensus statement on improving the prior authorization process that has been developed and that we utilize when engaging with plans? Sure thing, Carol. And actually, I'm going to remind folks of the prior authorization and utilization management reform principles that Emily mentioned a little earlier in this discussion. And those were released in early 2017 by healthcare professional and patient organizations. And the the goal of that initiative obviously was great to get that consensus and get so many people together and supportive of the same concepts and improving this onerous process. But our real hope was to actually get things moving with with health plans and and improving this process. And so we started with those original 21 prior authorization reform principles. We pulled together um, both national provider associations, so the AMA along with American Hospital Association, Medical Group Management Association, and the American Pharmacists Association, and then also health plan representatives, so America's Health Insurance Plans, or AHIP, and the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. And we sat down, we started with those 21 principles, and we said, like, this is what, you know, healthcare providers want, this is what patients want, plans, you know, what what can you agree to here? Um, and obviously, the, the principles are always going to be the stronger document. And as I indicated before, our kind of Bible and North Star and all this. Um, but, you know, the health plans were, um, you know, uh, cognizant of the fact that prior authorization has gotten out of control, even from their perspective, they're realizing that it's, um, you know, it's getting more and more um, public as a, a problem. There's a lot more news stories about it and people complaining about how it's harming patients. So they were willing to sit down and talk to us. And the outcome of those discussions was the release in early 2018, so a little over four years ago of the consensus statement on improving the prior authorization process. And that document actually in um, some ways does mirror the same general concepts that were in the original principles. Um, It 
talks about improving the transparency of prior authorization requirements, which is a huge problem for physicians. The, the first challenge of prior authorization is, is often figuring out what requires prior authorization. It also um, supports using a standard electronic process for prior authorization and ensuring that patients um, don't have um, don't face care disruptions when they change health plans or there is a change in their health plan, um, their health plans coverage during the the benefit year. So those were definitely similar concepts between the the consensus document and the original principles. And then also something that's really interesting and important is that the two first categories of topics in the consensus statement actually address reducing the overall volume of prior authorizations. And this is something we think is just critical because, again, we, we think the volume of these requirements has just gotten out of control in the past couple of years. And as Emily's been talking about, the first category was um, encouraging plans to selectively apply prior authorization to only those physicians or other healthcare professionals whose ordering or prescribing patterns are significantly different than their same specialty peers. So in other words, that's a fancy way of saying gold carding programs. So both the provider organizations and the health plan organizations agreed that something like gold carding is something we should support and implement. And then the consensus statement also addressed um, you know, regularly reviewing and adjusting prior authorization lists to remove drugs or services that are almost always approved. Again, it's extremely wasteful and a waste of everyone's time and money for physicians to be required to complete prior authorization for services that are always approved. It's a waste for the physician, it's a waste for the health plan, and all it does is delay the patient's care. So again, that document was released in early 2018. And what's been the response? So my understanding is that these are, um, you know, signed on by some plans. It's, it's a consensus statement, but they are voluntary, is my understanding. So how have the plans reacted? Um, have they adopted any, if, if all, the uh, principles? And if not, um, what are the hurdles? Why not? Carol, that is a great question and frankly has been a source of frustration um, for over four years now. Um, you know, the, the health plan organizations did agree to supporting these concepts and making these reforms, but it has been um, a very slow road to progress. We've seen, um, you know, barely any movement on the plan side on a voluntary basis since the consensus statement came out in early 2018. Um, as an example, um, you know, the, the gold carding programs that Emily was referencing are, are really implemented by very few health plans. Um, our physician survey consistently has shown that very physicians, few physicians report contracting with health plans that offer these kind of exemption programs. And then, um, you know, and Emily could speak to this in, in more detail, but when these bills come up in states, the health plans are fighting them very strongly, which is very um, frustrating and disappointing given the fact that they were supportive of these types of programs when we were developing the consensus statement. Um, and the same thing, we, you know, physicians consistently continue to report increasing volumes of prior authorizations over the years that they still are seeing their patients' care disrupted by prior authorization. Um, you know, they see that a patient's been on the same medication for years and all of a sudden it requires prior authorization and the patient ends up missing days or potentially even weeks of doses, which is obviously upsetting. Um, and the really, um, the only 
real reform the plans are interested in talking about right now is electronic prior authorization, which is something we do very much support, but we think it's only a piece of the pie and that we really need um, an overall holistic approach to prior authorization reform to really move the, the needle on this issue. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. So are the plans simply saying that this is a non-issue or are there legitimate system issues on their end? Or is it simply that, um, you know, they continue to be able to save dollars by not um, just going forward with with needed care up front? Um, Obviously, there must be a reason why they're resisting. Any thoughts on that? Any feedback? I I think that, um, and Emily, feel free to jump in with your thoughts. I think that they are not... uh, they are not interested in reducing the volume of prior authorization um, in the way that they committed to. Um, we just feel that there really are a lot of low value prior authorizations out there, things that are always approved or, again, physicians that deserve to be gold carded because they are following evidence-based guidelines and they don't really want to reduce the volume. All they're really willing to talk about is automating the process, which at the end of the day um, still has the potential to delay care in a, a very harmful way for, for patients. I don't know, Emily, if you have any thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I think, you know, despite uh, rhetoric that prior authorization is a quality control tool and that um, it helps ensure the right um, drug or service gets to the patient. What it really is, is a cost control tool. Um, and plans aren't willing to, um, have conversations that would, um, that would do away with prior authorization. Um, but I do think it's important to remember, uh, this is medically necessary care. Um, you know, plans are are not paying for non-medically necessary care and they, um, prior authorizations are approved at rates of 80, 90 or higher percentages from what we understand. So uh, the care is appropriate, um, but the deterrence that comes with prior authorization, the the uh, burdens that it places on practices and, and uh, patients, um, I think in the long run saves a plan's money. And that's by um, ensuring that patients don't have access to the care they need. Thanks for those insights from the front lines. Um, I think it likely confirms many of our physician members' suspicions about this activity, and I think it really underscores why we do have this multi-pronged strategy to tackle prior auth. We've talked a lot about the state advocacy efforts. Heather, can you tell us a bit about what's on the federal horizon for prior authorization? What is the AMA working on in terms of our federal advocacy efforts? Sure thing, Carol. And, um, you know, Emily and, you know, her work with the state medical associations for a number of years has been successful in getting um, progress at a state level. But 
um, we are now seeing actually federal activity on prior authorization, which is great. And frankly, also indicates how big this issue has become that it's getting national um, attention. Um, very excitingly, there is now a federal prior authorization reform bill, H.R. 3173, that would actually require Medicare Advantage plans to operationalize many of the reforms called for in that consensus statement on improving the prior authorization process. It would require these plants to streamline and standardize the process to offer electronic prior authorization through standard transactions. Um, it would also require Medicare Advantage plans to improve the transparency, both of the requirements, but also interestingly, to publicly report their prior authorization program data, much as Emily was talking about has been done in the states, we think is a really great thing um, that to show the public essentially, you know, how many of these prior authorizations are being denied, how many are being overturned on appeal, um, and you know, um, all kinds of data about the plan, the prior authorizations from the plan the processing time, that sort of thing. So we think that would really be a huge step in improving plan accountability. Um, and it would also um, require plans to ensure continuity of care for when patients change plans. So um, the, the plan that the bill, H.R. 3173, and its uh, companion Senate bill actually have strong bipartisan support, which is really exciting. Um, you know, these devices, times that's something that people on both sides of the aisle are supportive of. And we are hopeful that um, it can gain some traction and I have a hope of becoming law um, by the end of the year. So very excited about that. And it would be a, a benefit to uh, Medicare Advantage patients and also certainly physicians in reducing administrative hassles. That would be great. And we will continue to track that. Um, so while we continue this great advocacy work, I know we, we continue to... Um, give physicians advice and provide resources on strategies for practices to decrease the burden of prior auth that they're facing right now. Um, Heather, can you talk a little bit about those resources to support practices? Sure thing. And first of all, I do want to acknowledge the fact that, you know, probably the most important thing that I think the AMA is doing in this space is trying to enact these reforms that Emily and I have been discussing, um, because the bottom line is we really need to address the overall volume of prior authorizations. And um, there really isn't any kind of magical tool that we could offer physicians and their staff to magically make things 100% better. But we do have a few things to, to offer to physicians and their staff. Um, we do have a, a tip sheet for prior authorizations and um, offering some suggestions for how um, physicians and their staff can make the, the process less onerous. Um, you know, of course, always checking for prior authorization requirements before ordering care to, um, you know, reduce the chances of financial liability. Um, and then, you know, becoming uh, familiar with plans, each unfortunately idiosyncratic processes and requirements. Um, so that's available. And then we also have a um, three-part animated um, video series on electronic prior authorization for prescription drugs that is available on our website. And um, it's also available for CME credit too, which is um, exciting. And that process kind of visually shows physicians how electronic prior authorization works for a physician uh, for prescription drugs and how the process can make things easier for physicians by integrating the process within the 
physicians, EHR and e-prescribing workflow. So in other words, they don't have to go out to a separate portal or mess around with faxing forms back and forth. They can actually do the prior authorization process within their own clinical workflow in their EHR. So um, those resources are available on the AMA website. Great. Thanks, Heather. And, and back to your primary point, which is that it is really about the state and federal advocacy efforts. How can practices get involved in the AMA's prior auth reform advocacy efforts? Any tips, any places to send them? Sure thing. So I would um, send physicians and anyone else listening who's interested to our FIX prior auth website. So it's fixprioroth.org. It is our grassroots advocacy website, and there are a lot of great um, resources and information available on the website. There is actually a petition that people can sign to encourage Congress to take action on this issue. And then there is also a take action um, tool that allows anyone to send a message to their um, congressional representatives to support the federal bill that I mentioned, H.R. 3173. Um, So that is a great way to get involved. And there's also a um, share your story feature on the Fixed Prior Auth website. And we really encourage physicians and their patients to submit their prior authorization horror stories on that webpage. These um, stories are really, really important in our advocacy. Um, it's really important to have the, the, the stats that we get through our survey and those numbers are important. But I think at the end of the day, we really get um, regulators and legislators and policymakers' attention when we bring in the human element and tell them a story that we received in the website about how prior authorization hurt a patient and uh, how they weren't able to get the treatment that was medically necessary because of these requirements. Um, And I know that um, physicians and patients can also get involved in state legislative activities and maybe I'll kick it to Emily for a minute if she wants to talk about that. Sure, thanks Heather. And um, as Heather was saying, the importance of engaging with your stories and personal anecdotes about um, how prior authorization has impacted your practice and your patience is so critical uh, to get these reforms enacted. Uh, we work closely with state medical associations and national medical specialties across the country on these reforms. And if your state has a bill, it's really, really important that your state medical association hear from you and your legislators hear from you about the importance of um, these reforms being being passed. So I'll just echo the 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 um, urgency that Heather conveyed about getting your stories and your um, your your tales of prior authorization woes uh, to policymakers because, um, as Heather said, statistics are incredibly important. The data is incredibly important, but understanding that these aren't. Um, that, that in fact, prior authorization is not making care better, but actually standing in the way of patients getting the care they need is, is just critically important. So given everything that we've talked about today, is there any last thoughts that you want to share with our private practice physicians, um, anything they need to know about prior authorization that we haven't yet covered? Carol, I guess the only other thing I would say is that the AMA is very much aware of how harmful prior authorization is to both physician practices and to patients. We know how physicians really internalize, um, 
you know, the suffering they see from their patients not getting the care they need in a timely fashion, and that we are working very hard on this issue on a variety of fronts at the federal legislative front and federal regulatory arena, as Emily's been talking about with state legislation, and even just offering practice tips for physicians and their staff to make the process a little easier in the meantime. And um, certainly that the change of progress is much slower than we would like, and we would like things to be improving um, much more quickly than they have been, but we are very active on this issue and would continue to be. And we just encourage them to continue to reach out and share their stories with us because they do help us very much in our advocacy on this important topic. Thank you both so much. This has been a, a wonderful conversation that really highlights, I think, the breadth of the expertise within the AMA and the depth of the work that you are both and, and others within the AMA and within the Federation of Medicine um, and all these other important advocacy organizations are working on. Um, And I really appreciate both you, Heather and Emily, taking the time out of your busy day to share this with our private practice audience. So thank you again so much and um, good luck in the rest of your endeavors. Thanks so much, Carol. Yeah, thanks so much, appreciate it. Great. For more information, visit ama-assn.org slash guiding practices to support your practice's sustainability. Until next time, this has been Thriving in Private Practice. I'm Carol Vargo, and thank you for listening.